0: Well, I hope that I get to go to France when I turn 40. (laughs) Too late? Is that that right? Okay. It is there, sorry. Well, this morning, I want to welcome you, and it's just good to be here, House of the Lord. We... uh, I'm always excited to be able to go to church. I really am. I love being with uh, with, my f- my brothers and sisters in the Lord. And uh, as I was back there getting my mic and harness through and everything, and I, uh, a, a, a picture came to my mind. And uh, several times I have gone to watch Daryl Yoder pull his horses. And I don't know if you've ever watched that or not. But I was amazed the first time I went. And uh, those horses, uh, you know, they can barely pull them back to get hooked up to the sled. And as soon as that clink hits, they're off and pulling. And uh, that's sort of what I feel like this morning. I put this on and I was ready to go. I say that because I want to say that something has shifted in my life. And that is that I really can honestly say that I enjoy sharing the Word of God through a message. And I don't give that, I don't boast in that. I just say that I count it a privilege to be able to share the Word of God. And I don't take it lightly. I invite you to turn into the book of Ephesians. And I'm going to be continuing what I started the last time. We were talking about the household of households. Uh, we have that idea, that picture in the book of Ephesians. He, he references the church as a household. And so I want to pick up on that. Uh, but let's just read that passage of Scripture. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 through 22. And it reads like this. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God having been sorry, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being joined together, grows up into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together for the dwelling place of God in the Spirit. There's a couple words, a couple phrases that I want to pick up on this morning. And one of them is that idea of a whole building being joined together. I talked about being joined together last time, but now I want to think about the church. The, 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 what, the now I'm not talking about the building where we meet, but I'm talking about the, the, the church, the people being built up into a house, a whole building, not a fragmented building, as a carpenter, um, I built a lot of houses in my, in, in my day. There's two components. There are two things that are needed in order to frame a whole building. Um, well, I guess you don't need them. You know, I'll take that back. You, you really don't need these things. But if you want it to last, you need them. And the one is that you need a foundation. And he talks about that. Now, what does he say the foundation is made upon? It says that having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And so, what I gather from that, I don't think what he's saying is that we're supposed to build on people, but on the things that the people believed and how they lived their life. And so, we have somewhere to reference back to. We have somebody to reference back to, the apostles and the prophets. And that's like laying the foundation. I don't know if you know how critical a foundation is to a building. Um, And Eli would know, and many other of you would know as well. But when you go in to set a foundation, you know, if that footer, if that foundation is a quarter of an inch off level, it affects the whole thing as you go up. Nothing get square after that it's just hard to have a square and a plum building if the foundation is off-level and so it's a critical it's very important to have a good solid foundation the second thing that is very uh, much needed uh, he talks about the cornerstone now in our way of building today we don't necessarily use the cornerstone per se but when you lay up the walls and particularly in the day when we used to use cement blocks to build the walls of a, of a basement, you would always start in the corner. And again, that corner was critical to get plumb and level, both directions, going out one way and out the other way, because everything on that house is contingent on that cornerstone. And, so, and then he's saying that Jesus Christ is that cornerstone. Not only do we have the prophets and the apostles, but then Jesus Christ is the one that gets a square and he gets the whole building going so that we can build a whole building. Many years ago, while we were up in Suneros, uh, I was asked to spearhead a project for a building, a, a building a home for one of our uh, missionary couples. And it was up in Kenora. And, um, you know, around here, when we would build a home, we would dig a hole And then we would build. We would dig the foundation just in the dirt, but up there we had we had bedrock, and uh, it was a little bit different. We actually went in. We scraped off all the dirt that was, you know, three, four, seven feet deep, and got down to the bedrock. And uh, we laid our foundation on that bedrock. And as I built that house, I just marveled over and over again. I mean, that foundation is so solid it is it is uncom it's it can't compare to anything else that around here you're still floating on dirt but there you have bedrock and it's solid and it's hard that's the idea that we have here is jesus christ being that that cornerstone that will not move As we think about a household of households and what that looks like, and what that looked like in history, the early Christians—the the ones that came right out of right out of the gate, as it were, when Jesus ascended and he commissioned those Christians—we uh, they were the 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 it was the first ecclesiastical structure. I want to reference it that way. It was the first ecclesiastical structure. And, and they, they held to this idea, this, this, uh, this formation, this structure that God had established for the first 300 years. And um, they understood this biblical concept of household Christianity. And um, I would like to suggest that, that the, first of, the first of these, of the three that we want to look at, in history, is uh, of the of the history church was the was the ones that that came right out of the gate, as it were, right there with Jesus Christ being commissioned by them, and then the word spread from there. There was strength and unity in these new believers, unparalleled to anything that I think I've ever witnessed today. Uh, the, if we read the Book of Acts we can go to the book of Acts and, and, and we can see how their unity and their oneness of spirit uh, caused the power of the Holy Spirit to be unleashed in supernatural ways. And I know I've been tempted already, and you, and you may be tempted to think that, that as we read the book of Acts, that those things that happened were just time and place. It was meant for them, and we can't expect to see the same things today. But knowing and experiencing the character of Christ, I, I just can't believe that he would withhold something from us today that was available to them back there. The reason I... I think that we don't see, or I have not witnessed, the energy of the Holy Spirit being poured out as it was in the first century, brothers, that's how they witnessed it, is I think that we've been so tainted, so contaminated and influenced by the kingdom of this world that we have lost the oomph of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit didn't lose its oomph. We did, because of our own selfish living and our carelessness. And uh, so it's just an ex- exhortation for us to, to get back. Uh, but that's exactly what we looked at last time. We looked at what we call the, the Constantinian hybrid. And I know there's a lot of history going on here, but I, I'm doing it very intentionally because, because I would like to encourage us to go back to the idea of what the first century Christians experienced and how they saw the ecclesiastical structure as God saw it. The Constantinian hybrid, it was built on a foundation. What kind of a foundation was it built upon? Was it built upon the apostles and the prophets and Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone? Well, I think we all realize that it probably had something other than that. Um, And um, we saw how that the that Constantine had a huge influence on the history of the church. Basically, we concluded that he was instrumental in merging the church and state into one entity. And sadly, from that point forward, we saw the apostolic age coming to a close and a new form of, "quotes" Christianity uh, emerging that had little resemblance to the original intent that I believe Jesus Christ had intended for us. And for the next 1,200 years of history, it records a very dismal picture of regression and darkness settling over the church as they slip further and further away from from God's kingdom and picking up the values of the kingdom of this world. The story that's told is is a very pathetic excuse, I think, of the kingdom of God. And so what evolved out of that Constantinian hybrid or Constantine's influence is that we, we saw the Roman papal structure system that is still in effect today. This was the second ecclesiastical structure that we looked at. Um, its structure was very much a top-down organization. The further up the ladder, you made it in the system, the more clout and prestige you had to your name. And ultimately, the Pope, rather than Jesus Christ, became the predominant figure. And um, Jake gave us a very wise instruction in our class this morning, and I appreciated what he had to share. And, and I'm very conscious of this, especially as I'm teaching through this. Because it's, it's not my intent to, to tear down individuals or people groups. Um, but I am here to defend the gospel. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that Jake said is, is something that has been attached, and it's true, I agree with him, something that has been attached, a stigma, one of those warts and pimples in our culture, in the Anabaptist culture, is that we have been so ready to defend the truth that we are willing to, to err on the side of love. Okay? So we're defenders of truth. And we're willing to separate brother from brother in order to defend the truth. And we have been fragmented over the years. And this is not something that we, uh, th- that, that is a strength of ours. This has actually been a weakness of ours. And so there is that struggle of, of yes, defending the truth, yes, standing for the truth, and yes, working together as brothers in spite of the differences, rather than parting ways. So there's that there's that tension that's there that we that we face. But the structure that we see here, I, I just don't think follows the protocol. Of the ecclesia that Jesus had established, the church that Jesus had established. It just doesn't follow that mandate, that protocol. Yet it had major influence on Christianity since its inception and really still does today. What has changed in this structure is that the Pope's government is sovereign now only on a very small area in the Vatican over in Rome, uh, in that little enclave there that's there in the Vatican. That's what's shifted. The The government itself has basically gone away. However, even though the hierarchy is, is not considered a government in the modern nationalistic sense, the direct political influence that it carries still across the wor- world is very significant. I continue to be amazed at how much influence the Pope still carries today? He does. He's not a king. He's not. He's not really, except for that little area in in the Vatican. He he, he doesn't have any gu- governmental jurisdiction, and yet he covers. He, he carries a lot of clout today, and um, I I continue to be amazed about that. Um. One of the reasons I wanted to bring this out is because I, I want you to understand that our roots came out of this system, okay? This is where we have come from, and uh, we were there about 500 years ago. Um, and to be very honest, I'm going to be very honest with you, there are still elements of administration in our Mennonite and Amish cultures, in our churches that point back to this ecclesiastical structure of authority. And uh, I, would, I, would, uh, uh, I would just say that it, it has left a very profound influence in our culture. And I would also go f- so far to say that, that it is one of the warts and pimples in our, in our history that I think we need to continue to eliminate. And uh, it's, it's sort of our, uh, our way of thinking, or has been in the past. So now we have this ecclesiastical papal system in place. Like I said, it was the second of the three that, I wa- that we want to look at. What the church needed at this point in history is they needed another Paul or another John the Baptist who would boldly proclaim the kingdom of God and challenge this Constantinian hybrid and stand up and say, no, this this isn't right. We, We need to course correct. But what the church got instead was a primary defender of this hybrid Christianity. And it came in the name of Augustine, or St. Augustine, as he's often referred to today. Uh, He was born only 17 years after the Constantine uh, reign came to an end. But Augustine, I want to talk about him a while because I think it's very important for us to understand the significance of how he influenced the church. And he is still quoted a lot today. Uh, many leaders refer to Augustine's writings. And I just, I want to leave that for now. But uh, I want to I I talk about some of that. Uh, he was a very capable apologist. And uh, he, was, he, was, uh, he was a, a defender of, of what had come into play as the church. He had a convincing personality. And he used his writing abilities as a theologian and a philosopher to widely influence the development of the Western Christianity and the Western philosophy. Now, even though the extent of his influence wasn't going to be seen for many years, it laid the foundation. And, and when I and I intentionally used, focused on the phrase the foundation that we're supposed to build upon, uh, he laid the foundation for the next movement that was going to come along. Okay, I want you to get that. His writings are very are widely received. In fact, just the other night, Wednesday night, the Wednesday evening, for you men that were here, Pastor McLeod, the one that we listened to, uh, quoted Augustine. I don't know how many of you picked that up. I did, uh, because obviously of my studies, and being aware of his character and to be very honest, I feel a bit uncomfortable promoting something that that uh, would um, that would uh, have some of his have, have some of his uh, input. although not everything that Augustine said in fact, a lot of what Augustine wrote was good was biblical, a lot of it. But I'll tell you if you read his writings, you need to spit out the bones. okay It's like eating fish. There's, the fish is good, but oftentimes you get some bones with it, you got to spit out the bones, okay? And that's what you need to do with Augustine's writings. Well, a, a note of interest for Augustine was that he was heavily influenced by the writings and the philosophies of Plato. Now, Plato was on the scene about 430 years before Christ, so about 7, 800 years before Augustine uh, was Plato. But Plato... He was a Greek philosopher and a mathematician. And he was a student of um, Socrates. And then Plato also had a very influential student named Aristotle. Um, Aristotle, sorry, Aristotle, if I say that correct. These three men uh, laid the foundation for Western philosophy and the word is... Science. Now, these Grecians, they were scientific-based. Their mindset, their worldview was very scientific. And I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but but the Western world, our reason and our logic is very scientific in nature. We need to know why something works. We're very scientific-based. In other words, our mindset needs a reason for everything that is believed. Now, that's okay, as long as, it, as we do not bump into issues of faith. But Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3 says that without, no, not uh, verse 1, I think it says, without faith, it is impossible. To please God without faith, not science without faith. It's inspiring to know how many times that science and faith mesh together. It's very inspirational. However, there are times that faith and science appears to conflict. I'll give you a for instance. We believe that God created the earth in six days. Is that right? We're agreed upon that. God created the world in six days. How then do we explain the distance of starlight? Now, we understand that light takes time to travel. So we measure distances with light years. So, the distance from the sun to the earth is 8 minutes, 8 light year minutes, okay? The speed of light, it takes 8 minutes for light to travel. So, the, the light that we see from the sun was already 8 minutes ago, in theory, okay? So, the sun could explode, and we wouldn't know it for 8 minutes, Okay? The next closest star, Alpha uh, Centauri, is four and a half years, light years away. Four and a half light years. So the the next closest star, the light that we see from that, in theory, uh, started four and a half years ago. And there are many, many stars, many, many stars that are more than 600 or 6,000 light years away. And yet we say that the earth is only approximately 6,000 years old. Now, I don't give you this example to weaken your faith in creation. In fact, I give it to you to strengthen your faith in creation. There are times that we may not be able to give a scientific explanation for everything that happens or everything that we see but we must accept by simple faith that since God is God He can do anything and He has the ability I believe to create starlight in transit Uh, verse 3 in Hebrews chapter 11 by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word, the rainbow of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things that are visible. There's no science to that. It was spoken, and it came into being. In other words, he had the ability to make things out of nothing and speak them into existence. If he was able to create a mature Adam, if he was able to create mature trees and mature other things, then I think he has the ability to... Uh, make light that is over six thousand light years away from the Earth to be seen immediately. I can't explain it scientifically. I believe it by faith, and that's where we need to make the difference. And here's here's where here's where Plato and Socrates and and Aristotle probably would have stumbled. Because they were very scientific. They needed a a conclusion for everything that happened. Well, Augustine was influenced by these men. Okay? From their writings, he developed his own approach to philosophy and theology. and, um, And he came to the conclusion, he came to the conclusion that the teachings of Jesus were no different, from the old testament in other words we would say that he held to a flat theology i don't know if you've ever heard that term or not that he held to a flat theology that it, 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 and what that means is simply that you you take the bible and you view both the old and the new testament uh as 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 equal now, this is true when it comes to inspiration. Both the Old and the New Testament are, are inspired by the Word of God. But it is different in terms of progressive revelation. The New Testament holds a higher revelation because it is progressive from the old. Because he held to a flat theology that the Old Testament and the New Testament are equal in terms of revelation, he believed that killing was just as lawful under the New Testament as what it was the old. Listen to what he writes. Aristotle does, or uh, Augustine does. What is evil about war? Is it the death of someone who will soon die anyway, so others may live in peaceful subjection? This is merely out, um, this is mere cowardly dislike, not any religious feeling. The real evil of war are love of violence, revengeful cruelty, fierce and implacable enmity, wild resistance, and lust of power and the like. And it is generally for the purpose of punishing these things. When force is required to inflict the punishment that in obedience to God or some lawful authority, good men undertake war. For they find themselves in such a position as regards to the conduct of human affairs that right conduct requires them to act or to make others act in a certain way. Hey, wait a minute. The first thing that comes to my mind is, what about Jesus' words where he says, love your enemies, resist not evil. Oh, he had a reply for that. Augustine had a reply for that. He said, it may be supposed that God could not authorize warfare, because in later times it was said by the Lord Jesus, I say unto you, he quotes Jesus, that you resist not evil, but if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him to the left also. However, his conclusion to, that, to Jesus' words was, however, the answer is that what is required here is not bodily action, but an inward disposition. In other words, what he was saying is, it's okay to kill somebody as long as you love the person. Um, I stumble. I don't know about you. Um, According to Augustine, Christians can perform some brutal actions, the same brutal actions as the world, or those of the Old Testament Israelites, we just have to make sure that our inward feelings, our inward disposition, is nothing but love, peace, and kindness to our fellow man. Now, this, these are writings from, this is the philosophy from, from a person that is revered, uh, even today, by a lot of church leaders. He saw the two testaments as being flat or, or flat or equal in respects to God's revelation. However, we I see the entire Scripture as yes being inspired by God. All all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Yes, it is inspired by God, yet being progressive in its revelation. And so when when Jesus said, "You have heard that it was said by them of old times," da 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 da. I say unto you, that's the progressive revelation that we need to take, give, give ear to today. So I see this as being a major flaw in, in Augustine's teaching. Augustine was also a bishop of a church in later, later in life, and he had his own notions about how a bishop should shepherd those under his care. Listen to what he writes. Is it not part of the care of the shepherd when any sheep have left the flock, even though not violently forced away, but led astray by tender words and coaxing banishment to bring them back to the fold of his master when he has found them? Now, that's correct, is it not? Um, If someone has been led away by enticing words and making wrong choices in life, it is the care of the pastor and and laity as as well, to go and bring the person back, and try to bring him back into the fold. But look at the next part that he writes. And he may do this by the fear of the whip, or even the pain of the whip, if they show symptoms of resistance. What he didn't understand that in, in Christ's economy... The means is just as important as the end. Christians don't use violent means to attempt to bring about godly results. How we do something is just as important as what we do. I was in conversation with a, a man just this past week that continues to bump into relational conflicts. And, and I think as I sort of stand off the side and observe him, Part of the reason is the way he presents something with his voice. And I just instructed him. I said, you know, tone matters. Tone matters when we're talking to another individual. You you may have the best heart and the best intentions, but the way we say something uh, can make a difference on what the response is going to be like. Another area. That I think Augustine was very weak in is his understanding on, on war. Um, now, Augustine is typically credited as the originator of the just war doctrine, but that's actually inaccurate. Uh, it was actually the pagan Greeks who first developed this idea. Augustine merely borrowed <laughs> and promoted this concept. Uh, through numerous of his writings. Thomas Aquinas and other medieval theologians, based upon what Augustine wrote, came up with a list of of, uh, qualifications or conditions that would make a justifiable war. And I just thought it might be good for you to understand what some of these conditions were. Here's what they wrote. And these are the ones that they went by, by the way. And let me also just say that there are still many, many believers today who hold to this list of qualifications. A Christian can kill another man if the Christian loves the man he is killing. And these are the ones he wrote out. They wrote out, The Christian kills only in a war that was the last resort after all other possible solutions has been tried and failed. The Christian kills only in a war fought to redress rights actually violated or to define, defend against unjust demands backed by force. The Christian kills in a war that is waged under the authority of a ruler. The Christian kills only in a war that his side has reasonable chance of winning. The Christian tries to distinguish between soldiers and civilians, and he never kills civilians on purpose. The Christian kills only in a war which the killing is proportionate to the end sought. The Christian kills only in a war which the good that is sought by the violence outweighs. I really need my glasses. The Christian kills only in a war in which the killing is purport- no the next one the kid uh, the Christian kills only in a war in which the good that is sought by his violence outweighs the evil that the violence brings and lastly the Christian kills only in a war in which the winning side never requires the utter humiliation of the loser and this is what they this is what they this is what they came up with as a criteria of justifying a war. Um, <clears throat> for those of you who who uh, took up my challenge to listen to that debate on just war uh, with uh, David Bercow and and a couple other men. <clears throat> will notice that they quote, or that they refer, or they reference, the ones that were justifying war, the ones that were pro-just war, they would quote, or not necessarily quote verbatim, but they would reference these points. Um, To me, I, I just think it's preposterous if we are truly born again, to adhere to this kind of reasoning. Uh, the sad fact is that, the sad fact is that there are many evangelicals today who do believe this. Uh, that's very much part of our history here in the United States. For God and country. Very much that way. And um, the more I study this, the more deeply I have become rooted in the whole uh, doctrine of of non-resistance. I just really believe it is scriptural, and it is what Jesus taught. I just think there's a direct violation of Jesus' teachings. Recently, I was in a conversation with a young lady and a Christian young lady, a great girl, and um, she lamented the fact that Mennonites have two pet doctrines: non-resistance and non-conformity. And I can pr- I can appreciate her lament. I, I'm sure that that has probably been um, that has probably been um, overcooked. I'll use that word, and we know what happens to vegetables when they overcook. But the more I study church history, the more I realize, and the more I study the Word of God, the more I realize why non-resistance is so huge to the New Testament believer. Because the premise, the premise of the subject affects every area of our life. Divorce and remarriage comes into play, taking a brother to or anyone to law, in a lawsuit comes to play, our personal rights, humility and submission come into play, our relationships, etc., etc. There's so many areas this affects. It's really the pivotal point upon which side of the coin we come down as to how we're going to respond in, in many situations. So I'm beginning to see the scope huh, of this doctrine maybe more than ever before. Augustine also had another major flaw that I believe was a major flaw. And uh, that revolved around his understanding of salvation. He declared that humans have no power whatsoever to obey Christ and that we don't have sufficient free will to choose to obey Christ. In other words, we play no part of salvation. Now, I want to first develop why he believed that way and then I want to talk about the fallacy of it. He taught that the human plight was this way because before the, the, the creation of the universe, God arbitrarily chose those who would be eternally saved and those who would be eternally damned. He believed that there was nothing that we can do to change the destiny that God had already determined for us before we were born. In other words, he believed predestination predetermined salvation. Now, this is far greater than a two-minute dissertation, but I'll try my best. The bottom line is that his understanding of this doctrine nullifies the whole ethos of... Of the gospel. Everything about the gospel. The culture of the Sermon of the Mount would be meaningless if his teachings were correct. Why did Jesus teach that if we were already predetermined for heaven or hell? Um, Why would Jesus have warned us to build our house on the rock if we were already predetermined for heaven or hell? if we had no choice in salvation, if we had no choice in the matter of salvation, we would have no power to obey the teachings of Jesus. And then what do we do with a passage of scripture like this? Luke chapter 14, verse 26, through um, 33. If anyone, Jesus speaking, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, or children, brother and sister, yes, Even his own life, he cannot, emphasis, he cannot be my disciple. So, okay, that already states that there's a choice. (laughs) Um, Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So if I bear my cross and if I come after him, I can be a disciple of God. So I have a choice in the matter. For which of you intending to build, let's just jump on down. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider what he is able to do with 10,000 or whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000 or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, Whoever of you that does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. There's just too many conflicting passages of scripture to believe that we are predetermined for heaven or hell. The truth of the matter is, Augustine didn't believe his own doctrine. Or else why would he have written that it is the responsibility of the shepherd to bring back the sheep that had left the fold? Doesn't matter. He's predetermined. So even he didn't believe his own doctrine. (laughs) The truth is that the scope of his influence over the years laid dormant for quite a few years. Yet, it set the stage for some young, ambitious reformers who had come to the end of the rope with the well-established papal system. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther, according to some sources, posted the the famous 95 Theses, on the door of the All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany. Protesting the sale of indulgence. And I wish I'd have the time to talk about the sale of indulgence. In a nutshell, what was happening was, you remember that, you remember the picture that I showed last time of the St. Peter's uh, Basilica back in Rome, the church that is built back there? They needed to remodel this building and they were, it was the time that they were hiring uh, Michelangelo to do the paintings, which are still there today. And uh, they needed money. That's the long and the short of it. They needed money. So they, they went across Europe and stripped the poor people of the little bit that they had and promised them the forgiveness of sins and purgatory, which was which was the there's two stages of of uh, of the of the the, the death the, the death of the saints and one was that you will enter into a time of punishment even though you have had your sins forgiven you will enter a time of punishments for the sins that you've committed okay but you could buy your way out of that and this was part of the sale of indulgence. okay so they just the the, the 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 poor people and Martin Luther stood up and said, you know what? This is wrong, and he and he listed ninety five points of what the church was doing wrong. I, I question. I guess I really don't think that at that time Martin Luther did that to to try to spur a reformation. I think he was just doing what he thought was right. It had to be confronted. But out of his, out of his actions, a reformation erupted. Uh, his bold actions ignited the flame of resentment that had held the church under the control for so many years. And uh, it it became the, it, 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 it was a, Inevi- inevitable re- reformation uh, was 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 perpetuated, and it became the springboard, I would say, for the third ecclesiastical structure that we would see emerging. And uh, the early church was the first one we looked at, Catholicism, and now this last one, or this one here, was Protestants, the Protestant movement. The Protestant movement had a lot of, they made huge steps forward. It was a, Martin Luther came to understand scripture, that it was a faith-only way of salvation. And very quickly, others in the church, other church leaders, latched on to this new movement that was going on. In the southwest, a young Francinian priest uh, named John Calvin, jumped aboard. And it's very, it is very apparent that Calvin, in fact, his history would, would definitely state this, that Calvin was very influenced by Augustine's teachings. Okay, uh, This led to his promotion of predestination, the absolute sovereignty of God's salvation. Uh, Listen to what John wrote. He said, in his own words, John Calvin said, All are not created on equal terms, but some are preordained. Do I have that on? No, I don't have that on. Some are preordained to eternal life, others to eternal damnation. And accordingly, as each has been created for one or the other of these ends, we say that he has been predestined to life or to death. This is what John Calvin wrote. So he was very influenced by by um, by Augustine's teachings. Not so far away from Germany, where Luther was was a young uh, was a man about his age, uh, equal a Swiss Catholic priest named Zwingli, and uh, he also got caught up in this new movement probably the most glaring inconsistency with with Zwingli was the fact that he defended, he continued to defend the practice of infant baptism. In fact, this became a contentious matter with him. And um, when when others came to understand that the Bible is not talking about infant baptism, but rather believer's baptism, uh, this became a, a horrific... Uh, contention between the people. And ultimately, um, Zwingli and his cohorts uh, treated those who understood the believer's baptism uh, in the same manner that the Catholics treated the Protestants when they left the church. Isn't that amazing? Um, Zwingli actually actually distanced himself a little bit from Luther on several theological fronts, but the common thread that tied these three men together, probably the most influential men in the Protestant movement, Zwingli, Luther, and and Calvin, is their admi- admiration of the Augustine tradition. I want to wrap this up very quickly. The premise of this new structure that had evolved. It had a strong faith-based theology that also promoted a much more loosely controlled environment in the churches and was very significantly different from the Roman Catholic church that they had just come out of. Instead of a top-down structure, the clergy in this newfound relationship, would find themselves standing on equal platforms beside the laymen. Uh, With the authority behind them, the authoritarianism behind them, both the priest and the laity stood independently beside each other with a faith, now listen to this, with a faith that was too personal and too private to be judged by each other. Now, the leaders of the Reformation probably never saw or anticipated the logical conclusion that their thinking would produce. But in the end, um, the Reformed theology Produced a church leadership devoid of any meaningful input or authority. And I'll get to that again later, just a little bit. It also set the stage for the laity to lose its ability to speak meaningfully into each other's lives. See, my connection with God is only up and down only vertical. What I believe God shows me and I'm accountable to him not to each other. And I know I'm 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 I'm, I'm stroking a broad brush, okay? I'm stroking a broad brush because I'm sure that within these environments you may find brotherhood accountability. But overall this is what we would see coming out of it in essence they were too catholic in their thinking and lodging in in their logic which which landed them basically in the pool of each man doing what was right in their own eyes um Luther's hope, I believe Luther was on to something. I really believe he was on to something when he taught the faith that he did. Um, next time, we're actually going to see, I think, where he may have flawed in his faith-only presentation. When when he launched his the, the new faith-only ship, huh, he was hoping that it would bring individuals to a personal inner reform. I really believe that. But in the end of his life, his disappointment is captured when he said that the lawlessness of those under grace was worse than those under the papacy. So what went wrong? All of a sudden, they had this freedom. And what evolved out of that was worse than what he saw under the Catholic structure. Someone noted that Luther tore down the old house, but he built no new one in its place. I think what was really needed, rather than a reformation, and by the way, I don't think they started out saying, we're going to have a reformation. But what they really needed, instead of a reformation was a revolution. And uh, they tried to take what was there and just reform it into something else. They needed a revolutionary touch of Jesus in a, in a, in a very distinct way. I want to conclude with just a word of exhortation to us. And the word of exhortation I want to leave with you is that, that I would propose that every action calls for a response, okay? So, whenever there's an action, it always calls for a a response. Either we validate it, we don't validate it, we're indifferent to it, it calls for some kind of response. But when our response becomes reactionary, regardless of the situation, we stand in grave danger of misjudgment. Um, I do not disagree that Catholicism needed a response. It did. But it would appear as if their response became reactionary, and I think we still see some of the effects of that today. So, what I want to do next time is just go back to the Word of God, to the first century Christians, and say, what does it look like? To be a household of households. Let's pray. And then Henry, I'll just let you close as you want. Father, thank you so much for your kindness and your goodness. Thank you for your love and mercy. Thank you for history and the things that we can learn from history. And we know that this is this is uh this is not your word, but you do write your story. And part of what we heard today and what we studied today. Was and is part of our story, as we go forward from here. Father, it is our utmost desire to to live the way that you have called us to live from your word. And um, we would just pray for a uniting of our spirits in oneness to each other and to you, Father, for your honor and glory. Be with the youth, the leaders, and give them a good day. And we just commit ourselves to you. Uh, in your name, we pray. Amen.